said, Amen. I want to talk to you this morning really about dying to love, but I titled this message, Love Sandwiched. Love Sandwich. Uh, what is your favorite sandwich? Uh, I'm really not a sandwich person. Uh, I, I will eat a sandwich, but if I eat a sandwich, I have got to have some meat on it. Somebody say amen. I mean, I want something substance. I want some, I don't want any just little, give me th- two pieces of ham sandwich. If you're going to give me a ham sandwich, I want like five to ten pieces of ham on it to make it worth eating. Otherwise, you're just eating bread. That's what I want. I want some substance on my sandwiches. Uh, and if you've ever been maybe to the drive-thru before, Anybody ever had this happen where you go through the drive-thru and you open up and there's not even a meat patty on your hamburger, your sandwich? How many people had that happen before? Well, yeah, right. Okay, so I'm not going to name the restaurant, but sometimes it's like, you didn't just mess up my order, you didn't even give me my order because it's just two pieces of bread with some mayonnaise and pickles. I mean, how do you miss the meat when you are ordering a hamburger? I mean, that's like the main point of the hamburger is the, the burger. And so it can't be a ham. It's just two pieces of bread if it's not got the burger in it. And so how many people are, are with me? All right, you're with me. You got to have some meat on your sandwiches. And my kids are weird like that because in my family, you're like, where are you going? Oh, it's okay. Just hold with me. Uh, my, my, I have a three-year-old or four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and it's weird. My, my oldest likes peanut butter and jelly. My youngest, who is the pickiest, she hates peanut butter and jelly, but she will eat some chicken salad sandwich. It's interesting what they'll do, and if you are a parent of a toddler or have been a parent of a toddler, you know how hard it is to get their order right. Let me, let me explain. Just in the last few months, my child has discovered bologna sandwiches, uh, and there's a certain way that sandwich must be made, and apparently dad can't make it as good as mom can, all right? And it's not cut the right way, or am I want it on the side, or no, today I want it sliced this way. And at my house, we actually have this little thing, it's a pig's face, and then you can... Stamp the sandwich, and it's a pig. And so for a while, I have to have a pig sandwich. And so it's got to look like Mickey Mouse or whatever it is. And so uh, in those moments, Jesus and I are not always the same person, okay? And so I'm like, you're going to eat this sandwich. You're going to go hungry. I mean, I I don't care. I will walk out of this room, and you can fix your own sandwich. And so uh, I'm confessing, right? And so uh, you can lose your Christianity, with toddlers, and I've learned that, you know, the, in this moment of growing up as a parent, you realize and recognize sometimes, you know what, people are all like this. You know, some of the adults I've met are just the same as a toddler, and from, from the beginning to end of our life, from toddler to nursing home, I'm learning, we're all very selfish. We're all very demanding. We insist in things in our own way, in our own time, and how we like it, that's how we want it. And we often don't have patience, uh, whether, no matter how old you are. Uh, And our flesh has this idea. It wants everything quick and easy and painless in life. That's what we want. But guess what? You've got to live life with difficult people. You know, somebody say amen. You have got to work with coworkers who don't do their fair share. You will raise children who don't always put things away in their room despite the thousands of times you remind them. All the parents say amen. Uh, you, uh, d- despite how long you get there to get early, sometimes you have to navigate traffic jams. Sometimes your computer crashes and you lose all your work. And sometimes you have a flat tire or a broken lawnmower or perhaps any other unexpected inconvenience. Even this last month, I had my weed eater that didn't work. 
And I, you know, I know enough about mowers to keep things going. And no matter what I did, and I didn't have the right tools that day, and I had to get a different socket. And then I went and got to, you know, got the, got the, the spark plug, and I got it, and it finally worked. And that wasn't it. And then you drain this, and then I changed the fuel line, and, and that still didn't work. And no matter what I had, then through after a few cuts and bruises and things flipping off and hurting your hand, and you almost lost your Christianity again, you finally just throw the thing and go to tractor supply and buy a new one. That's what you do. Uh, so, uh, how many know that you can lose your Christianity with an inanimate object? That thing's not alive. It didn't do anything. It's my own fault that over the years the corrosion and things have built up with the gas tank or the carburetor. And it's like that thing didn't do anything. It was just a thing. But here I am out there yelling and kicking and screaming in my yard. Think, Lord, and I have no neighbors. You know, and, and you're like, how is this? This is a thing. But you know that we can lose our love, lose our patience over dead things, over inanimate things. You know, and the problem in every situation is you and I have a choice to die to self. We have a choice to die to self. Sometimes our unhappiness, our frustration is not something else's fault. It's our own fault. That's hard to hear. Sometimes it's not their fault I'm frustrated with them. Sometimes it's not that thing's fault. It's an inanimate object. Sometimes traffic just happens. Sometimes computers just crash. Sometimes people have all kinds of reasons why McDonald's took 20 minutes to get your one coffee. There's all kinds of reasons why all these things happen. But I have a choice every single time to be Jesus. I have a choice every single time to be Jesus. In every situation, I have a choice to die to self and let Christ live within me because God is love, but love only lives in you where flesh dies. Love only lives in you where flesh dies. And love is that substance of the Christian life. It's that thing that has to be sandwiched between every expression of your life. And that's why today you've got a little sandwich bag with our sermon title in the middle, is that love has to be sandwiched. Without a sandwich, without meat, there's no substance. And a Christian without love has no substance. What's the point of a Christian without love? It's just nothing. There's nothing without love. And if we don't have love sandwiched as a substance in our life, in every expression, in every expression, as people partake of your life, if they're not getting a bite of love, Love, it is all for nothing. It's all for nothing. And I, I looked up the verb, and I'm not talking about sandwiched today as in the, the thing, but you know, sandwiched with an ED on the end is a verb. And what does that mean? To be sandwiched between two people is to be stuck in the middle. And I want to talk to us today about love being stuck in the middle of our life, something that has substance of every expression that you could ever offer anyone in this world. Because without it, we're just an empty shell. Love has got to be central to everything we do, everything we say. So in what area of your life do you find love lacking? How much substance is there to your Christianity? And is love central to everything you do and say in your life? I'm going to challenge you today to make love sandwiched in all that you do. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. The centrality of love... Let's read it, and I'll explain it, all right? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If you're there, somebody say, Amen. All right, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be learned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, love does not brag, it is not arrogant, love does not act unbecoming, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into account wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For if we know in part, we only prophesy in part. But when the perfection comes, the partial will be done away. And when I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child and reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And now I know only in part, but then I'll know fully, just as I've also been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let me give you the climax and the, and the background of this, is that Paul has been speaking to a very divided church, and he has just talked to them about the spiritual gifts. And from 1 Corinthians 1 through 12, we end in, we're now at 1 Corinthians 13, and the entire book is led up to this one moment. And sometimes we take this book, this chapter out of context. And I preach this at weddings and, and we use it all the time when we talk about generalities of love. But it really, this, this chapter is really written to a specific church about specific things. And for instance, uh, they have been boasting in their preferences of leaders. They were puffed up in their expression of a church, but they, they had sin in the middle of their church. So love is, he's saying, puffed up. He says they were unwilling to suffer and bear one another, and they were taking each other to court in chapter 6. They've been insisting in their own way on how they want to eat idol meat and what they believed in expression of Christianity. In chapter 8, they were acting unbecoming and shrugging off social modesty and not dressing like men and women. In chapter 11, and they'd been insisting in their own way of how they would partake of the Lord's Supper and forgetting to wait on one another in chapter 11. And they were jealous now of chapter 12 and envious comparing their gifts. And every problem this church had in every single chapter, Paul comes back to the central, central uh, message. You have many problems, but you have one solution. For every problem expressed in this church and in our Christian life, the central answer is love. How have you sandwiched love in the middle of your life? How has love been sandwiched in every expression of this church? And he gives 15 things in this chapter, which love is and which love is not. But it's really not about defining love in general. It's saying, you've got a problem in your life. Let me show you what Jesus looks like, and let's see if you measure up to it. So tell me your problem, and I'll tell you what he is in that problem. He says, he is love. He's love. And in fact, if you look in chapter 12, which is the gift chapter, in chapter 14, which is the second gift chapter, what did Paul sandwich in the middle? Chapter 13, the love chapter. Paul specifically said, you are expressing so many things as a Christian. You're going through so many things, but let me sandwich love in the middle of this problem. And I think that we can take that to our own life and my marriage and my family and how I relate with my spouse, how I relate with my coworkers. Have I sandwiched love in this relationship, in this expression? As I, as I, go, through, as I go through Walmart, as I'm waiting in that McDonald's uh, uh, drive-through and it's taking forever, 
and you want to lash out and you want to get frustrated. And this week I saw someone just throw their tea back in you know, to the window, just take my tea and give me my car back, and they just drove off. They just they didn't want to wait any longer for their meal. And I'm like, Lord, help me to sandwich love because that lady, that's not her fault. You know, so have I sandwiched love in every expression? And he says, without love, look at this. He says, without love, you can have all the spiritual gifts. You can move mountains. How many ever moved a mountain before? You can move mountains with your faith. You could have great acts of sacrifice to the poor. You could even go to the stake and be burned as a martyr. You could even die for Jesus. But it would all be for nothing if you haven't sandwiched love in that expression. If you're doing this to boast about yourself or to have a work of flesh, he says that God cannot live in that space. You have to sandwich love in the middle of our life. This agape love is the selfless love that describes Jesus. And Romans 5 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love only lives where the flesh dies. Without love, there's no substance to this life because love is the greatest gift. It's the greatest fruit of the Spirit. And love has to rule everything I think, say, and do. And this is probably, to me, one of the most challenging things to talk about. We can talk about giving more money. I can talk about attending church more. I can talk about signing up for missions trips. I can talk about memorizing and knowing more about biblical history. I can tell you about Bible verses, and we go to JBQ and memorize Bible verses. We can do acts of kindness, and we can go out to this uh, community and flyer the neighborhood and, and redo and pick up the trash. We can do all kinds of things. But if we don't have love in the middle of our hearts, it is all for nothing. That's a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing to do because it's going beyond your efforts of the flesh to let God do something himself on the inside of you. And so are you certain that what you're doing today is love? Did I show up to church today because I love you and I love his word, and I love being a part of the church? Or did I show up to church today because I know I'm supposed to and I don't want to go to hell? Or did I give in the offering today because I know I need to and the Lord commands it and I, and I want God to bless my family? Or did I do it because I really love to give? You see, that's something that only you and God know. I don't know that. But it's gonna matter to God if why you're doing it. We can talk about the how all day long. We can talk about the what. But why? Why do you go to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you talk to someone about Jesus? We could have an evangelistic campaign and go talk to 400 people about Jesus after this church service. But if we don't have the why down, the what is for naught. Amen? Why do we love? What motivates me? How do I know? What if I'm like the Corinthians and I have all these expressions and we can speak in tongues and we can prophesy and we can pray and, and we can know all these great things and we can do all these great things? But we can still be totally off, totally misguided, because we don't really love like Jesus loves. Is love sandwiched in my life? Look at these words. So let's talk about the, what love is not first. Love is not and love is. So there's a few things he says love is not. And let's look at these, some of these words and just unpack them just for, for a couple of minutes. Number one, he says love is not jealous. What is that? It means that it doesn't envy those around you with greater gifts or abilities. It doesn't ever envy them. And it also does this. It doesn't play the victim. Oh, Lord, help me. I'm not like them. I can't do what they can do. That's not love. 
That's playing the victim. Love doesn't play the victim, and it's not jealous about what they can do and what not can do. I can't play the piano like Mrs. T. I don't have anything I can do in the church. Well, that's not love. Love is, I, I love that person. I love this. I love God. I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. Love, uh, and it's not being busy being jealous. If you're busy being jealous, you've got no time to serve the Lord or be happy with what He's given you. Love is not jealous. It is, secondly, it's not boastful. It doesn't brag. It's not puffed up. Love doesn't feel the need to tell somebody uh, when they did it. Like when you have your kids, I cleaned my room, Dad. You know, like I did it. Finally, and that we're supposed to every day, but I did it. You know, like love, it's not boastful. It's not bragging. And doesn't feel the need to build itself up, but love wants to build up somebody else around it. You ever been one of those people that like every time you're around them, you just feel good about yourself? Like you're just with them and it's like they're so encouraging and they're so uplifting and you just want to be around that person more and more because when you're around them, it's like, Man, they're just so wonderful to be around because, yeah, they're lifting you up. Everybody loves to be lifted up. You, they lift you up and they don't talk about themselves. Love doesn't do anything about self-glory. It doesn't feel the need to call attention to its success. Number three, love is not arrogant. It doesn't consider itself first. It's not big-headed. It doesn't overshadow others, and sometimes we can be in a room full of people, and really, the whole room is really revolving around one or two, three people who really, the whole room, and no matter what, just becomes about that person. But love is not arrogant. It does not consider itself first. It thinks of others before it thinks of itself. So love is not jealous. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were jealous over spiritual gifts. They were boasting that some spoke in tongues and some didn't. And sometimes in Pentecostal churches, we need to remember that the love chapter is between the gift chapters, that love is the central gift. It's not arrogant. It's not unbecoming. Unbecoming means it's not offensive with its freedoms. Just because it's right and doesn't mean that it's right. Are you hearing me? Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's right to do it. It's not unbecoming. They had freedom in Christ, but they didn't know how to use that freedom. And so they started putting off restraint, putting off authority, putting off what they cared about. Other people think, I don't care what anybody thinks because I have the right to do this. This is my rights. How many hear that on the TV and the news and on Facebook right now? If love is not unbecoming. It is not throwing off restraint. It is not throwing your freedoms in the face of other people. Love is not unbecoming. It is not offensive. It respects and it has restraint and it respects authority. Next is love. He says love is not self-seeking. This means not seeking its own benefit or uh, it says that it's seeking the good of the many. It's building up others. It's seeking the benefit of the whole versus the benefit of itself. And love is not provoked. means it's not easily angered. It doesn't major on the minors. You know, some things you just have to learn to get over. I can't believe how they looked at me. They didn't, you know, that person didn't shake my hand when they came into church. Who cares? Are you there because you want people to shake your hands? Are you there because you're Jesus? Are you, because you love him? Are you there because, they're like, they didn't say hi. They didn't, they forgot that at work and they always treat me that. It doesn't matter. Jesus is coming back. There's a heaven, there's a hell, there's a devil, there's a world that's going to hell. What do we care about all these things that we're petty on? It doesn't major on the minors. There's a lot of things. You're gonna get offended. Get over it. People aren't gonna like you. Get over it. As long as God likes you, that's all that matters. Come on, somebody. I mean, that's all that really matters. It's not gonna always go well. Things are gonna happen. But do you major on the minors? Love, it says frustrations don't frustrate love. I like that. Frustrations don't frustrate love. I've heard this phrase, and I, I'm going to try from now on not to use it. We say, don't get me started on that. You ever had that? Y'all confess it now. Don't get me started on that. What does that mean? 
That means you are quick to get upset about something that you're about to talk about. Oh, don't get me started on blah, 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 just fill in the blank. Don't get me started on that. What does that mean? Love is not easily provoked. That means if you touch that, you're about to provoke me to anger. That's what that means. Don't get me started when you start talking about this or politics or this party or that party or that thing, mass versus no mass versus this. Don't get me started. That's because you're easily provoked. Ooh, he's preaching. <laughs> Love is cool-headed. Love takes it on the chin. Love takes it on the chin. Some of that needs to come into our marriages. Love does not count wrongs. It doesn't desire revenge. It makes allowances for fault. It forgets when it was wronged. Some things have been done to us perhaps so badly as a child or in our youth, and it's hard to forget. And that's true, it's hard to forget. But forgiveness is commanded. Forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not, not building into that relationship again, but forgiveness is coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I accept the sacrifice that you gave on that cross, and what you have done for me is bigger than what they did to me. What you have done for me is bigger than what they did to me. So Jesus, I receive all the payment for that hurt, for that pain, for that sorrow, and Jesus, I make the conscious choice to let it go. Doesn't mean you have to trust the person, give them the keys to your car, but you do have to let it go because that thing is a cancer. It's gonna eat inside of you and love counts no wrongs. It does not keep score in a marriage. It does not say, well, you always forget the trash and you never remember to pick up your underwear off the floor. You always, always do this or you never, never do that. That's called keeping score because you always and you never means you are never letting go of things that person always does. Right? Let it go. Stop taking scores. Stop keeping track. Just give up and just say, Jesus, help them. Jesus, deal with them. Lord, I give you my husband or my wife. Lord, do something with this person because I can't. That's giving it over. Love, God. Love, help us to love people and not count wrongs. And lastly, love is not rejoicing in unrighteousness. It does not celebrate sin. Sometimes we think that we can pass over things and I'm just going to love them and God's going to deal with them. No, sometimes love has to go to the source and tell it like it is. Love does not rejoice in sin. Love does not cover up. Love does not pacify. Love does not just let yourself be taken advantage of. Love gets straight to the point and says, I love you enough to tell you the truth. If you keep acting this way, teenager, this is what's going to happen in your life. Or my sister or brother, someone in the faith that that you see them going in a direction, I love you, so I'm going to tell you the truth to your face. This is how it looks to me, and I love you. That's why I'm telling you this. We need more honest conversations like that in Christianity. We want to pacify everything and just watch it on Facebook, and people are dying going to hell, and we don't even care to talk to them because we think love is passivity, but love is direct. It's honest. It's confrontational. God always got a hold of Israel and said, hey, I love you. If you keep going after idols, this is going to go badly for you, and there are consequences for this behavior, but let me tell you the truth. I love you, and I want you to come back to me and be in right relation. That's love. Love does not rejoice in sin. It does not gloss over. It does not sweep it under the rug. It's not hiding family secrets. It's not addressing things that need to be addressed. It it rejoices in the truth. Love is, and listen to what love is. Love is, here's a good one, patient. 
Love is patient. You know what that word means in the Greek? It says, willing to suffer long time. Willing to suffer long. Love is willing to suffer. Everybody look at your spouse and say, I'm willing to suffer with you to death. You know, I'm willing to suffer. I will suffer with you, woman. I will suffer. I'm willing to suffer with you till death. Till death do his part. I'm willing to suffer. Patience is to suffer a long time. It means to allow interruptions in your schedule. Oh, that's a good one. Allow for interruptions in your schedule. It means being slow to anger. It means that people don't annoy you. Lord, help us, Jesus. I got a lot of work to do. A lot. Lord, help me that people don't annoy me. And aren't you glad? Here's why. What if you annoyed God every time you were not doing right? You know what the Bible says? The Lord God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You don't annoy God every time you come to Him. Man, I'm so glad I have a Father and that Jesus sought His life to give it up for me and that I didn't annoy God with all my failures and frustrations and I have a God and it's your job and my job to demonstrate to this lost and dying world that they don't annoy us because God doesn't, isn't annoyed by them. I mean, they look at a church and they get put off or a Christian get put off and that we have to have a love that says, God, you have a patience, a tolerance to sin and disappointment. You are long-suffering. You are patient with us, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And does the world see that in me? That I'm willing to suffer with ignorant people, with family members and in-laws. I'm willing to suffer with co-workers because love is living where the flesh is dying. God, I'm going to give you this patience. I'm going to sacrifice myself on the altar today. God, I'm giving up my desire to be annoyed by this person. Second is love is patient. Love is kind. It is not easily angered. It is courteous. It's obliging. It's mild-mannered. It's gentle. It's tender-hearted. It's affectionate, one author says. That kindness means it's ready to show compassion to those in need. And that goes back to the interrupted say, We are so busy sometimes that we don't have time to press pause and just do an act of kindness to give money to someone in need or to deal with an issue that we see uh, passing through. We're so busy. Uh, just the other day, we passed so many homeless people in Alexandria, and there are several that I passed by. I'm like, I don't know if that's the right and then we pass another family and I said you know what let's just stop and just give to that family because they look genuinely authentic in need and we're so busy it would be so easy to just pass by and go get our ice cream and go to Lowe's and go do this and go do that but do we have kindness and compassion and empathy for a lost and dying world I don't care what they're going to do with that money or how they're going to use that's between them and the Lord it's up to me to be kind and I think about, when I, when I researched the word kindness, I thought about these, my kids are, you know, I have two girls. They think about those Disney princesses that are out in the woods and they're singing with the birds, or, you know, like Cinderella or whoever. And they're so kind and gentle and everything likes them. And I'm like, Lord, am I a likable person? Kind person. You just, did someone look to you and say, man, that is just a kind person. 
Is that your reputation? Is that my reputation? He says, love bears all things. It does not uh, easily complain or grumble. It takes injury and provocation without resentment, one author says. It keeps going on even when the load is heavy. It takes up its own cross. It doesn't run from pain, and it bears the load. It bears the load in your marriage when things get heavy and tough, and the load is heavy. Love keeps on bearing. It doesn't give up on your marriage. It doesn't give up on that family member when things get stressful. It's going to bear the load. Even at work, it's going to bear the load. And even everything is falling apart, but love is going to keep bearing the load because love bears all things. Love believes all things. It means it gives people the benefit of the doubt, even Democrats and liberals. It gives them the benefit of the doubt. It gives people who believe differently than you the benefit of the doubt, who look differently than you, who smell differently than you, who act differently than you. Gives them the benefit of the doubt. We get mad at people at the restaurants when they have no help, and we don't know what that person has gone through all day long, how many things have been thrown at their face, and we want to get mad that we don't get our hamburger on time and that we don't have meat on our sandwich. There's no substance to it. But the substance I should be giving is grace and compassion and mercy to that person to abound in kindness and generosity, to give them the benefit of the doubt. We look people with tattoos and earrings, and they come from a different background, and we look at this, but you don't know that person's story. You don't know where they're at with Jesus. You don't know that they're about one step away, or they are, they are right there with you. You don't know. It believes all things. It hopes all things. Hopes all things means it hopes for a positive future. It's not pessimistic but optimistic. You know, we are very easily pessimistic right now in our country as Christians. It is so easy to be frustrated and upset about every single thing you see on the news with one party or the other or one candidate or another candidate. Are we a pessimistic people? Are we a optimistic, hopeful people that Jesus is coming? We're going to win, y'all. This is, not, this is not the end. It's not all about America. It's not about a party. It's not about a president. It's about King Jesus. And with Jesus, everything gets better. And he can do all things. So he's, we're hopeful. You know the number one killer of marriage in marriage counseling? It's not money. That's top three. It's not communication. That's top two. Number one is hope. When a person comes into my office and they believe that this is if it's over, we can never get beyond this issue. They've lost all hope. And what's the point of counseling if there's no hope? If you don't believe with a little bit of work, a little bit of effort, a little bit of forgiveness that things could ever be better and go back to how they used to be, it's over. Hope is the number one killer. And my God, how, how can we, we have hope in a day like today? And it's only by where the flesh dies and we look at things in the natural eye in this world, in this country, and we say, Lord, you are the author and the giver of hope. And so my hope is not rested in these things. My, well, there's a song that sings, my hope is not built on anything less than Jesus Christ, his righteousness. Right? My hope is built on Christ the solid rock. That's where we stand. Amen. Lastly is this, it endures all things, it rejoices in the truth. Endures all things, it holds fast under pressure, love wins against the odds. It endures pain, rejection, loss, loneliness, failure, abandonment, and death. And so can you say rightly, I love my neighbor? No, I cannot. You see, it's impossible for me to love like this. The Bible says if you don't fulfill every work of the law, you're destined to hell. And this passage right here shows me Heath Harris is incapable of loving like this. 
because love can only be a supernatural work of God and it can only live where Heath Harris dies. I have no hope of loving except without Jesus. That's why he's my hope. Does it make sense? He's my hope. I close with this. Paul says, he says, guys, it's like this. You see in a mirror dimly. You ever go into your bathroom and it's foggy and you can't really do your hair? If you're like me, it's pretty easy. Uh, but you kind of know how your hair is done. So even while the mirror is foggy, you can start working. Are you with me? You, you kind of, it's foggy. And even if you wipe it, you still can't see, right? You take those really hot baths or showers and you can start working on your hair. And then by the time the mirror has unfogged, you're halfway there. You might have to fix some things because you're not probably going to, you know, your part could be in the wrong place or the curls are not in the right spot. But you kind of can start working on it because you know what the image is supposed to look like. You know what your hair is supposed to look like, some of you, maybe. All right? Uh, you know what you're going for. The same way what Paul's saying. Right now, church, you and I only have a glimpse of what a Christian life should look like. And Paul says, here's the image that it will be when this life is over. It'll be in the perfection of Jesus Christ. It'll be in the image of God's Son. For God is love. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is slow to anger. Jesus bore all things on the cross for you. Jesus endured all things for you. Jesus is long-suffering towards you. And the image beyond that mirror is Jesus, but it's foggy right now for us. And until that time, we have just a glimpse of what our Christianity should look like. But until that day, I can keep working with what I can see and what I know and start fixing the things now because when perfection comes, there's coming a day where I will be fully in Jesus and Jesus will be fully in me. And I don't have it all together right now, but I have a glimpse of this awesome God who died and gave himself for me. And I get to joyfully work until the day that the mirror is cleared up and we see him face to face. And you will look exactly like him. Amen. Isn't that awesome? So let's start doing our hair, all right? For some of us, that's more hard than others. I won't pick out names, right? Let's, let's, let's start working to be like Jesus. And he only lives where self dies, and every expression in your life, everything that you do, Paul says in Philippians, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation, and he left that place of glory and came and walked among us and even died on the cross, even a death of like a cross, like a criminal, and as a servant, he let himself be killed and that God would raise him up again one day. He knows what God's going to do. Have this mind. Lord Jesus, help me to have love like you love. It is not possible for anything that we could do. The best thing we can be doing is dying to love. Are we dying to love somebody? You can prophesy in his name. You can cast out demons. You can perform miracles. But he can still say to you in Matthew 7, I never knew you, depart from me. You could do all these things, but if you don't have a love connection with God where he is producing love in you for this world, it's all for nothing. Have you sandwiched love in every expression of your life? Oftentimes I tell our, our marriage counseling, we'll have premarital counseling, and I'll tell them, 
One of the exercises I do in this passage is this really should read, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind. But if you really want to be honest with yourself, you're going to put your name there. You're going to say, Heath is patient. Heath is kind. Heath does not envy. Heath does not count wrongs. Heath bears all things. You start saying, that's not true. That is the area where you need Jesus to come in. And so what is that area for you? They're going to play this song here in a moment on our, on our track. I wanted to take a moment, just five minutes here, of just intimate reflection. And number one is this. Maybe today you can recognize that there are things in your life that I am not right in relationship with God on. Maybe today you don't know Jesus and this love has not been manifest in you because I'm gonna tell you something, it's impossible to do. You can't live this Christian. Maybe you recognize I've been living this Christian life or thinking this Christian life could be led on good works and good behavior and good morality. It's impossible. The only thing you can do is surrender your life and let Jesus come in, and that's the first step. Now, if you don't know the Lord and you haven't surrendered completely your life to him, that's what you, I want you to think about and pray about in this moment, that you would believe that Jesus came, he died, he rose again, that he's coming back, and that if you would repent of your sins and look to him and believe on him, you'd have forgiveness of your sins, eternal life, and that the Holy Spirit would come in and begin to produce something in you, a born-again experience where he begins to live this life through you. And secondly, as Christians, is every day we have to choose to die. And that we're t- continually working towards that image. And it's a daily thing. And so I'm challenging you, as this song is played right now, here in this moment, would you just say, Lord, would you reveal that area where I need you to produce love in my life? And you would just begin to repent of maybe that impatience or that intolerance. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe there's something the Lord is going to reveal in this next moment. You say, Lord, would you just take that area? I surrender that area to you. I surrender that area to you and that you would just birth love in that place. Let's just take a moment. Let's just let the Lord fill this room. Let's let Jesus do something just for a minute. Can we do that?